Hello and welcome. You're listening to Leadership Playbook, a London Business School podcast exploring the latest thinking and key issues for leaders and those aspiring to lead. I'm Vala Rollins, Executive Director of the London Business School Leadership Institute. I'm the host of a number of episodes of Leadership Playbook, focusing on various aspects of leadership. In this episode, we focus on neurodiversity, its definition, and the role it plays in board and business performance. My guests today are Randall S. Peterson, Charlotte Velour, and Mel Francis. Randall is the founding academic director of the London Business School Leadership Institute, and in his role of professor of OB at London Business School, was responsible for launching the Introduction to Corporate Governance and Board Effectiveness course into the LBS degree program portfolio. Over the past eight years, Randall has acted as academic director on a number of Leadership Institute research collaboration and efforts commissioned by organizations such as the Financial Reporting Council and the Chartered Institute of Governance. He has also written a number of articles on board effectiveness and governance that have been published in business journals such as HBR and the IOD Magazine and other academic journals. In February, his book Boardroom Disasters was published, co-authored with Gerald Brown. Charlotte is a former merchant banker who has emerged as a corporate governance expert fueled by the board experiences she's gained over the past 25 years. More specifically, she's chaired three international companies and has non-executive directorships at a number of private and public companies. In July 2020, Charlotte revealed that she's on the autism spectrum and soon after launched the Institute of Neurodiversity in 2021. Charlotte is also the founder of Board Apprentice, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to increasing diversity on boards globally. She is a clear advocate for board effectiveness, diversity, and board education, and has been interviewed by a number of high-profile press and broadcasting establishments. In an interview with the Sunday Times, Charlotte said she set up Board Apprentice because she kept hearing directors say, we'd like to appoint more women, but there are none with board experience. She added her first idea was to set up fake board meetings that could be used to teach people, but realized it's just not the same thing. It needs to be real. And last but not least, Mel Francis, who is a senior HR professional, a chartered fellow of the Chartered Institute of Personnel Development, a neurodiversity champion, and keynote speaker. Mel, Charlotte, Randall, welcome. Thank you. It's a great honor to be here. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here with you, Viola. And me too. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start off by establishing um, a working definition of neurodiversity. My sense is that when people hear the word neurodiversity, uh, individuals are carrying uh, different definitions of this in their heads. So, Charlotte. So for me, neurodiversity is, is a natural variation of neurotypes within the human species. Um, it's not um, something that's gone wrong or something that needs to be removed or cured. Being neurodivergent simply means that you have a different neurological setup to what we call the neuronorm, if you want. Uh, and I challenge anyone to define norm. Do you to have any sense of why neurodiversity is being increasingly discussed, uh, both, you know, in 
organizational context and um, just in general contexts? Um, so from, from my perspective, the whole neurodiversity movements really started at the end of last century, where we had um, Judy Singer, which is an Australian sociologist, coming out with the definition of neurodiversity um, with regard to autism, that autism wasn't pathological, it was simply a variation of normal human activity. Um, and since then, many advocates have uh, come forward with the same with the same piece and pushed along that road for, for 20 years ever since then. And I think about sort of uh, three, four, five years ago, that had enough sort of noise behind it to then become something much broader. And I think also the, the sort of world culture, if you want, of individualism is growing. And as opposed to everybody trying to fit in, we are, we are understanding that we are not all uh, you know, the same, and it's okay to be different. And this is sort of the last frontier of those social movements that has come through. I think this is the last social movement we'll see in this space of diversity, but we never know what can pop up. I would say, I mean, I want to build on what Charlotte has said and, and talk about, you know, that we start with the very fundamental human desire to belong. And to belong, we need to feel connected and be and many and for many people feel something like the other people around us and if you are a little bit different from what is the norm right for many many years for a long time we thought of that as somehow bad be just because it's different not because it's actually bad and one of the things i appreciate coming out of um the, the work that charlotte recognized and, and others is recognizing that many of these neurodiversity or you know diversities actually oftentimes have some big positives associated as well so it's you know and that actually helps people to achieve what ultimately they want which is optimal distinctiveness you want to fit in but you want to stand out in a positive way we all want both of those things at the same time and it's a recognition at this point that different ways of thinking can be exactly that it can be really positive as well as sometimes a challenge to our feeling of belonging in a group. One of the things that I'm conscious of is that I'm getting the sense that people are using the phrases neurodiversity, autism, Asperger's interchangeably. And I'm curious just to get, you know, your thoughts on, you know, what might be going on there and what things you want people to think about when they use those different terms. Neurodiversity is the umbrella sort of a name for for autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, Tourette, OCD, all of the different neurotypes. In fact, and neurotypical uh, is one neurotype as well, which is a more normative type. So it's all part of neurodiversity. And and there are two different worldviews, if you want. So you can have one where you have the normative in the middle and everyone else is outside, not normal. Or you can have a big mm -hmm. one that is, this is normal. And within that, we have all different sizes and shapes and types. And this is a worldview that I would like the world to move towards. Understanding that we are all in the same self, but we are different. And this feeds into, you know, racism, homophobia, all of these kind of things. Exactly the same things that we're trying to drive towards. Uh, so Asperger's, for example, is a term that 
that's not being used anymore at all because what it also did was split us into high functioning and low functioning. I mean, of neurotypicals, we mm -hmm. don't talk about someone as being high functioning or low functioning. So why would we do that in, in the more neurodivergent population? So it's, it's just we are born in a certain way. And so there's a lot of discussion around the whole language thing. Do we say someone with autism or do we say someone who is autistic? Uh, so my personal one is with autism. Well, it's not something I can put on or off as it suits me. It is there from from cradle to grave. I can't remove it. I can maybe reduce it for the benefit of other people so that they don't feel that I'm too different and therefore will reject me. Uh, but again, should we be doing that? Should, you know, my children are half African. Should they be less colored so that white people are more comfortable with them? It's It's all of that together under neurodiversity, if that was a bit crude in saying it in that way, but it's just to sort of further the education and the understanding. I, I, think, that's, I think that's really helpful. Uh, Mel, would you add anything? Sure. So um, we know that uh, neuro differences started to be identified way back in, you know, the end of um, the 18th, no, 19th, 20th century. Um, and we can see the way in which neuro differences, as we know them now, are starting to be described in various texts. Um, what happened during the 20th century was that the um, the real um, differences were starting to be defined in medical journals. And so what we know is that there was word blindness started to emerge and be recognized. And then subsequently, um, and it was typically boys actually, we know through the research that were, um, that were found to be different. Um, and so autism, as we know it now, started to be discovered through social difficulties and interactions. Um, and then subsequently with ADHD, for example, where um, hyperactivity was, um, was identified typically with boys. We know so much more now. Okay. Charlotte, is there anything you'd want to add? No, I, I completely agree that when I said Asperger's isn't used, is that it's fallen out of the diagnostics. So it's not being used in diagnostics anymore, but it was. I mean, my son, for example, was diagnosed as Asperger's, but, but really now they just say ASD across it. Um, I would love to get to a place, this is our North Star, why we don't have these individual mm. silos, because apparently 70% of people who are autistic, for example, are also ADHD or ADD. So it seems to be very, very commingled. And it's very rare for a person to just have one neurodivergence. There's, there's generally more in it. So which one do you relate to, which people ask you to disclose, for example? Or which one do you mention? Or do you just mention all of them, which many people do? But this is where the term neurodiversity comes in and is very helpful in that that I'm, for example, currently on the diagnosis for ADHD because I think I might have that too. And I just want to understand myself better. But basically, mm -hmm. if I can just say I'm neurodivergent, then bang, that's the end of it, right? And then it's a question of where do I spike? You know, what's my profile? And that will be very different for me to someone else who has the same labels, but actually how they present can be really different. So if we can at some stage move to individualized you know profiles like for example professor amanda kirby looks at something called she calls spiky profiles mm -hmm. then you individually can get your own spikes and where do you have your strengths and where do you have your weaknesses which everybody has not just neurodivergent people everyone has strengths and weaknesses actually i just want to shift a little bit and 
get Randall to say a bit about the concept of neurodiversity in the context of the boardroom and board effectiveness. Um, I know, Randall, this was something that we tried to talk about in our research work for the FRC, but given what you're hearing, can you can you share a bit about some of the things that we looked at and were keen to help educate people around in terms of neurodiversity? Sure. Um, diversity, um, in terms of you know, having an impact, uh, say, on decision-making, it has it's the stuff you don't see. It's that deeper level diversity that drives a lot of the impact uh, of diversity. And I mean, but oftentimes what you look like, it's confounded with some form of neurodiversity anyway. And so there's also a relationship with, uh, with what you see. But, um, you know, when we spoke to uh, people in the boardroom, they were surprisingly aware of the importance of neurodiversity and were interested in seeking it out um, really broadly, um, which I, I thought was, was interesting. Um, and I think for me then, I think it, it came back to this larger point that we made about diversity. Um, and we assume when we say diversity that we all understand it in the same way and we don't. And that's why it's important that I think we, that we uh, have the conversation that we're having now um, I agree with points made by both Mel and Charlotte here that some of it's I mean, literally in how we define it and some of it is in how we think about it. Um, that these, uh, and I love Charlotte's point about it would be better if we drew a, a big circle that includes a whole variety of different ways of thinking that we're all inside of. Um, and in fact, that's what professional psychologists actually you know, do. And I think this is what's really changed over time is what's really outside of that circle. And there are a few things outside of that circle, you know, beyond kind of, you know, typical, typical norm. But they put a lot more things in the circle in the last 20, 30 years. And I think that's right, because it indicates that these are not bad traits. These are traits, these are differences that actually reflect some positive uh, capabilities and insights that most people don't have. It's a unique gift. Oftentimes, yes, and it and it was great, you know, for me in terms of our uh, research for the Financial Reporting Council to see chairs and uh, Ned's making just that point. Uh, in fact, I think one of one of the the most brilliant things we did in terms of the research is not projecting or giving a working definition of diversity, but just to ask the open. Question: What is your definition of diversity? And I think that just cracked open something for us in terms of the richness uh, and flavor of the you know, individuals' answers and working definitions in their heads. Could I just add a bit to what what Randall was just saying? I mean, I think in the boardroom, what we talk about a lot is cognitive diversity. And many people talked about that even, you know, five, ten years ago, but nobody really fully understood what, what are we talking about when we talk about cognitive diversity. But actually, neurodivergent people is that, right? We genuinely think in a different way, but you also think differently depending on your background, your upbringing, you know, your socioeconomic, everything. But, but another thing in, in terms of what's on the inside of this big circle of normative and what's not, I'm left-handed, right? 
50 years ago, that was not normal, right? And we got bags on our hands. It was actually looked at as a disability. But today, nobody even bats an eyelid. People used to comment a lot. As soon as they saw me write with my left hand, people would be, oh my God, you're left-handed. And actually today, nobody even thinks about it. So that's where I want to go with neurodiversity. To a place where we don't think about it. It's just, yes, of course, we're all different. Like a fingerprint, I love that one. It's like different fingerprints. Our brains are also equally different. Charlotte, that that's a great jumping off point for my next question. Uh, that I'd like to pose to you. I remember uh, being invited to an awards dinner as your guest, and it was the evening before you were due to get your uh, results on some medical evaluations you had recently gone through um, that were looking at your, you know, cognitive operation. Um, And you shared with me what was going to happen the next day. I'm curious to know if you can remember how you felt that night when we were having that conversation and then subsequently when you were talked through the results? Yeah, thank you. It was a, it was quite a big thing. I had sort of self-diagnosed, if you want, a couple of years earlier. So it took me some years to get to the point of actually trying to look, is there actually an official diagnosis uh, to this difference that explained a lot for me. Um, I was excited to hear what the outcome was because it it could potentially, if it was, yes, actually, you are, then it would answer a lot of questions. If it's no, you're not, then I would start walk away and still feel different, but not really have moved forward. So it did then the next day uh, come out that I was autistic. And my first reaction was I burst out crying. And, I, and my first thought was, oh, my God, have I done something wrong with my children? Uh, that was my very, because they are my dearest thing in life. And this plays into my own biases. Because my own biases with regards to being autistic was, oh, I'm wrong. Something is wrong with me. Something needs to be fixed. And actually, I have had to reevaluate all my own biases through this entire process, uh, which was quite hard work. Uh, but once I could embrace it, it was a lot easier. There was no support, though, after the diagnostics. I tried to contact someone said, ladies can support you, but there was nowhere to turn. Um, I, I had I found no therapist who knew about neurodiversity as well. Um, I was concerned with my future career for sure. I was concerned that I would be discriminated against and that people would forget about the, the then 35 years of successful career and only see an autistic person in whichever light, Rain Man, whatever thing people are putting on it. So it was a great concern to me, but but something that uh, I just had to face head on and move on. It seems it has now six years later. Uh, I'm still getting offered board positions. I'm still being recognized for what I, I, I can do, as opposed to for the potential struggles that, that lies within having this broader sensitivity. It's a very broad sen- sensory band uh, that I have to just look after better, uh, because I always felt, well, I can do what everyone else can, but actually maybe I can't always, and I have to take that into account and look after myself better. And that has certainly helped me do that. And, and Charlotte, given what you shared, and, and thank you for that, um, was there an event that helped you in terms of turning the corner after your diagnosis? Not specifically. I think it was just sitting in it and sitting through it. I have to say that, that two years later, I went very public with being autistic, uh, which was extremely scary as well. I was the chair of the Institute of Directors at the time. 
So I did have a platform. I had a lot of pressure from various um, organizations um, within especially autism to go public and to be that role model for people that you can also succeed, that it can it doesn't mean that you will never succeed in life. It's also possible to succeed. Um, and in the end, I just had to go for it uh, with my children's blessing because it could effectively affect their prosperity if it meant that I would stop making earning any money. I'm not rich, so I have to earn money. Uh, and they were behind it as well. So um, I think it was still a slow progress to realizing actually this is a huge thing. This is a we need a massive change in this area and to start pushing that through launching the Institute of, of Neurodiversity to get a global platform that we can all gather on and come together and actually have a stronger voice because we are many together. So we launched that nine months ago and we are just around four and a half thousand members and followers now. So it's, it's going in the right direction. We want a million in four years. So uh, yeah, I mean, have big ambitions. <laughs> Yeah, super. And and I want to thank you for really being keen to use an evidence or create an evidence-based platform for the work that you're doing in the Institute. And in fact, um, that's one of the things I, I want to go to next, uh, a study that was published in Harvard Business Review in 2017 um, that, that demonstrated that neurodiverse people are able to bring particular talents, such as pattern recognition or memory skills, um, to their work organizations and groups that they're a part of. Now, with companies you know, being keen to broaden their perspective and skill sets, especially in the boardroom, it's fair to say individuals who are neurodiverse have a lot to offer. So I'm curious if you might be able to share what are some of the behaviors one might see or observe in those who have neurodiverse attributes? Um, I think once you once you have realized your own neurodiversity, it's like you just see people. <laughs> it instantly comes, oh, that person seems to be possibly neurodivergent. That's a way of understanding each other differently. Yes, pattern recognition is certainly one that I only just realized late, actually at London Business School. I was attending one of your Sloan uh, evenings to introduce it, and they showed a pattern of, um, of a chessboard with 16 pieces on and then for five seconds and we should trot it down. And I had 11 correct, which was the highest there. The next one down was seven. And the teacher there or the lecturer said, oh, you're an outlier. And I was like, okay, <laughs> again. And But it hadn't occurred to me that there was some pattern recognition there. But then I could certainly see how I'm using that in my work as well, uh, bringing those patterns together. And when I speak to other neurodivergent people, we often talk in patterns. It just keeps coming up, it seems. It's just a way the brain is structured. But again, not for all of us. I mean, you have, for example, dyslexic people. I, the whole reading issue is just a very tiny, you know, front window of this whole different world of thinking and being of, of uh, you know, talents and things that that... They can do. I mean, Richard Branson, is, is he as successful as he is because of or despite of being dyslexic? Well, I think because of. And I think he's leaning to that himself. It just brings something else, which is a much bigger way of, of thinking in a way or much different from the normative way. And that's how we are able to create, you know, languages. How can you create a language if you are an all-rounder? It doesn't happen. 
all rounders are all rounders. They know something about everything, but at a certain level. But when you specialize, you go deep into maybe one subject for your entire life, right? Which means that you will be an absolute expert in that area, but you will know very little or nothing about all the other things in the world. And I'm probably a little bit like that. Mel, is is there anything you'd add to Charlotte's reflections? I would, yeah. I think it's really, um, your question's really interesting, Viola, when you say what are the particular traits. And there's a great saying that was specifically, I read, related to autism. It says, once you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And I think you apply that right across all of the neurodiverse conditions. And I think what's really important is that we appreciate and start to understand the richness of a neuro of our neurodiverse brains. And rather than um, talk about what are the traits, because what we also know is that there may be, as Charlotte's just said, you know, somebody with dyslexia might have difficulty with writing, or they might not. Actually, they might have someone with dyscalculia might have particular uh, difficulties with with maths formulas or they might not. And they might have difficulty with social interaction, which is typically associated with autism. But, you know, it's trying to be broad about our understanding and really individualizing the neurodiversity or the cognitive diversity, if that's a more palatable term for your organization. What I loved about your research and the report that you produced was that you didn't feed your participants with, from this list, choose what's important for your board. They proactively chose that neurodiversity was a really important um, requirement for the diversity of their board. And that's as defined as it needs to be. You know, the fact that our brains work differently individually and then in the confine or the construct of a group is so important for us to be able to get the best out of teams. That's helpful. Thank you, Mel. Actually, I want to use something you mentioned, Mel, just to make another pivot about uh, neurodiversity in the boardroom. And I'm curious, Charlotte, um, were there things that you became aware of in regard to your style that you needed to perhaps keep front of mind for yourself when um, in an NED role or a senior independent director role or in a chair role or even, you know, as someone who's maybe leading a committee? Thank you for that question. There was a number of things that I noticed that I should be aware of. Um, first was actually my intolerance with people not coming on time. So if a board meeting starts at nine, it starts at nine, right? That's when we start the agenda. It kills me when we can't do that. But I realized that actually possibly I was being a bit too inflexible on that uh, because it seemed that uh, the more neurotypicals actually needed a lead into a meeting where they do small talk for anywhere between five and 15 minutes. I, I was like, okay, well, right, the meeting starts now. And so now I have learned, taught myself to be a bit more flexible on that and allow the small talk even if I'm not enjoying it myself because I'm just waiting for the meeting to start and when I chair it I would just go right it's now nine o'clock meeting starts if people haven't come on time well then they will come in in the middle of the meeting and I was not you know flexible but not I think they should have been there before and do all of that before the meeting starts another thing was around risk management for example uh, when I look at risk and we weigh it in at, as in, you know, uh, probability of it happen and impact of it happening, on the probability of it happening, 
I'm always the same as the other board members, but on the impact of it, I tend to have 10 or more different impacts that can have different severity, where, where most of the board members have three to five. So I would always put it further out with a higher impact than the average. But once we've discussed, then I go through, okay, let's see, we've done these exercises a couple of times. These are the impacts I'm seeing, and they all went, oh, 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 haven't thought of that, haven't thought. So it's clear that somehow I, I'm able to see more, more impacts or see more potential risks, but also opportunities that equally also can have a really big impact, but other people don't see. And that can be very frustrating in the boardroom if you see something and you can't bring other people with you in seeing the same. Um, and at times it can be so frustrating that that maybe it's not so good for me to be on that board. <laughs> and that's the time where I would have to consider moving on because you want to be with people that are open-minded enough to, or to understand that we all look at things differently and that's a strength. And when people differ to me, when people have another opinion to me, I welcome it because instantly I feel I have an opportunity to learn now. And I find that very exciting. Although I might say, Charlotte, I would think that that skill would serve you well as a chair of a board because a chair's, a chair's role is to facilitate, orchestrate, pull out thoughts, right, thoughts, ideas from the other members before sharing their point of view. So I, I could see as I said, in, in, a, in a role of a chair, that, that could be extremely, extremely useful skill. Yeah. I like people that are very different from me on the board, where there seem to be a tendency to liking people that are very similar, but that isn't adding to the board body. It's only, and so it can be quite irritating when it takes a long time for us to agree something, but that's what happens when you have a broad range of cognitive diversities in a decision-making process. And I think that's absolutely vital to make better decisions. And the fact that it takes longer should not be a deterrent to seek to turn all the stone sets there to be turned. But it does seem to be sometimes, and, and that's something I also don't work well with, because for me, we are there to serve the company. If it takes us a bit longer to serve it better, then we take that extra time, right? Right. I love that. Randall, I'm keen to see if we can get some of your thoughts on some of the themes we discussed, especially in the context of the work you do around diversity in boards and board effectiveness. You know, I guess the thing I would say is how do we, because the thing I've been worried about or thinking about is what could we do to help boards, you know, work through this stuff and get the best out of all of this without getting, feeling too much of the frustration that Charlotte you know, rightfully mentioned, right? I mean, a, a, a good neurodiverse group takes time because you're seeing the same complex thing from many different angles. And each of those angles reveal something important about the overall picture, but not the exclusive important importance of the picture. Um, you know, so I have always, I mean, for 30 years now, going back to having seen it in a Wall Street Journal article about um, everything important in life comes with an instruction manual, except people. And wouldn't it be really great if we just had some instructions on how to get the best out of the people we work with? Um, and so I have always encouraged people in my classrooms to do that. And I've done it. People who work very closely with me will, will have seen it um, and know, you know, let me just give you, it's, you know, it's just, let me give you some clues about how to get the best out of me and 
where when this happens, um, where you're probably not going to get the best out of me. Um, and, you know, it's really meant to be a kind of helpful thing. And I get, I've got loads of great positive feedback about it over the years. But even simple, tangible actions like that can help the board or any group for that matter, you know, navigate this stuff more effectively. And, and I have to say, Randall, it was a delight to see the students on the um, course, the board's course that you run, get that sort of aha moment when you set that as a piece of homework <laughs> for them to think about. And it was interesting even where you place that. So you talked to them about the dynamics on boards. Uh, we did some role plays, but it was only after that that you said, you know, actually, you might want to think about what your instruction manual was. Um, and you shared what you've just shared. And it was, it was again, great to sort of witness the, oh, yeah. Yeah, in this, in this highly unusual context we think of as a board, right, those, those are very unusual. That's very unusual interaction. And so it may look quite different there than it looks day to day with the people you, you know, you, you share a home with. Um, and it would be, it's, it's self-awareness raising to actually just do it yourself, even if you never share it. And that's what I've told them. Look, you may never share it with anybody else, although I hope you would and feel comfortable with that. But even if you didn't, it allows you to really think about how you are coming across to the people around you. And that's really useful stuff to be doing. Charlotte, did you have any, any thoughts on that? I think it's, um, I mean, the whole question around disclosure is, is, quite, a big, uh, is quite a big piece that we have first spent time discussing around the world at the Institute of Neurodiversity in the first three, uh, three months of this year. Because it's so big for everyone, and uh, it shouldn't be full of shame and fear, right? It should, it should be much more easy for people to talk about their neurodiversity without fear of being discriminated against. Um, but unfortunately, that's not where we are. When, when I went public, I had many other directors writing to me. I'm autistic too, but I would never dare saying it publicly. I go into leadership teams and boardrooms and say, I can guarantee you there's at least 20% neurodivergent people here. You might not talk about it, but I know you're there. <laughs> and then people start sort of twitching around on the chair a bit, but it's a fact. We are everywhere, but in, but in the higher ranks, we're hidden uh, because people are scared. And that's a social construct, right? That's not something we're born with. That is because of the social... Um, social guidelines or whatever you want and, and all the biases around us. I knew a professor who wouldn't say he was dyslexic and then finally did. He's now uh, on LinkedIn as the dyslexic professor, Nigel Lockett, and I love him for that. He did that before I went public and I have a lot of respect for that because that is what we need. We need neurodivergent leaders to openly talk about their neurodivergence so we can properly embrace it at all levels. We're not just entry level you know, we are, we are the whole full spectrum of human beings in all areas. I mean, social workers, bakers, you know, you name it, we are there. But in all, you know, our diversity, and people don't always notice, or maybe people do notice, but it's not talked about. Yeah, and I think um, it's, you know, it's very easy. It's going back to that other point about we all want to feel like we're part of a group. And and, uh, and not very long ago, right, those were outside the circle, 
those things. And, you know, as you say, we're on a mission here. You're on a mission. I think probably all of us are to make sure those things are in the circle and it be perceived as something different. But different isn't necessarily bad. Different can be actually good. Um, just depends on what we're doing and what we're working on and how things are, you know, happening right now. And, and even if it's, you know, even if it's not, right, it's not a something to be ashamed of in any way, shape or form. So here is the, here's the question I suspect many chairs or senior independent directors or non-executive directors may wrestle with. And that's how do you offer feedback and developmental coaching for or to individuals who are neurodiverse? Um, and I'm especially curious about boardroom situations because one of the factors that we know contributes to being effective in a boardroom involves that reading reading of the room or having an extra awareness of the impact of your style on others. Charlotte, any initial thoughts on that? So if it's in terms of giving feedback to someone who is neurodivergent, broadly, I would say um, direct is good, clear. I don't get sarcasm, for example. I don't really get indirectness, like where people walk around what is there to be said, but they keep going around it. And, and I'm just like waiting to understand what it is they're trying to get to. And where we could save a lot of time if we just go straight in and say, you know, it's like this or it like, it's like that. Um, I mean, I've been leader of teams and groups for over 30 years now uh, in my professional career. And I have always said th- I mean, with sincerity, because I all I get, I mean, I'm very honest, naturally, it comes for many of us as a natural, because the whole idea of lying is like, well, some children might do it, but adults, really? It's, but the fact is that people do have lots of little lies during the day or slight, you know, change of the, of the truth. But but being clear and direct in a kind way, obviously with kindness and respect for the person, seems to have worked well for me. I mean, I've had to hire and fire many people uh, during my career, and pretty much most of the ones I had to fire in the end are still connected with me and talking to me and friends with me because it was very clear the reason why I had to do that in the end. It's not because I enjoy firing people. It's because it was necessary. They weren't fulfilling what we had clearly laid out should be fulfilled. So they understood in a very clear way. There was no convoluted way of delivering the message. It was direct and clear, but kind and respectful to them as human beings. And I think from my perspective, that works. And if we can't be kind, uh, you know, in business as well, then kind and, and respectful is clear. It's clearly very key things for me in business. And when we are that way, then you can deliver almost anything in a good way, and that is understood. But the clarity is really, really important. Not waffle, not convoluted. Say it as it is. Yeah, and we we could probably have an entire episode on the working definition of kind. Yes. <laughs> we may come back to, to that later. But, you know, often what I share with individuals is that they need to pay attention to the quality and tone of their delivery yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, because, you know, we often forget the voice is instrument and, you know, uh, words or phrases said with a, a certain emphasis uh, or intensity are taken very differently to those um, said in another way. And it's also about knowing the position you speak from. 
So when you have a chair position, you already have quite a lot of authority and, and sort of power. And there's one thing for me that I don't really see power in positions, but I need to recognize that other people do. So if I speak, if I speak in, a, in, in too directly as a chair, it can feel to people as if I'm shouting at them. Uh, so that's something I had to, to adjust because otherwise people get intimidated very quickly. And that's very important to be aware of. Thank you. Mel, is there anything you would add? Yeah, it's quite, I thought your question was quite interesting, Violet, to say, how do you offer feedback to someone who is neurodiverse? And I would flip that to say, how do you offer feedback to anyone? You understand the individual that you are dealing with and you prepare for that feedback conversation. And sometimes you don't have time to prepare. So you jump in and sometimes you get it right. Sometimes you get it wrong. Sometimes you offend, etc. And that's the same for all of us. But understanding the individual that you are you are interacting with, I think, is really important. So understanding their particular strengths and challenges and relaying your own strengths and challenges, you know, be careful of the shadow you cast, right, in leadership, in in conversations, and be careful of how you come across to somebody, because sometimes we just don't think about that. We're only thinking about, this is the conversation I need to have, as opposed to, this is how the individual might receive my conversation, and is that right? So it's really taking the individual and thinking about how you are going to prepare for that conversation, I think, is really important, whether it's somebody who you know to be neurodiverse or who is who is not who you know to be neurotypical. You know, bearing in mind that one in five of us is neurodiverse. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's a very constructive challenge. Yeah. Do any of you have any advice or suggestions on um, individuals who may be neurodiverse what they could do to boost their effectiveness and engagement in the workplace and or on boards? So first and foremost, I would say that in the workplace and on boards, you you do need to have continued self-insight. You need to continue to work on yourself and understand yourself better in the context of what you develop as you as you grow up if you for example like me are late diagnosed at 52 I had to look at everything all over again and just reevaluate how I had handled different situations and and now I have that extra dimension to my self-knowledge in terms of how I handle situations with other people and always curiosity curiosity of the person in front of you and the people around you I mean that anyone in front of you will always know something that you don't know Right? Even if it's a child, it, you know, they have some knowledge that any one of us wouldn't have. And, and if we are always having that humility, in a sense, with the people in front of us, um, that, would be, that would be helpful, I think. There are lots and lots of resources um, around in the UK that people can draw on with regards to being in the workplace. But I recently spoke to a coaching company that was looking to coach young executives on the sort of unwritten rules in the workplace, which I found could be super helpful for neurodivergent people as well. For example, something like do more than you're asked to do and you might faster be seen to for promotion, right? But, but for a neurodivergent person, that wouldn't always make sense because our minds are super logical. So we, we're asked to do um, a specific task. We will do that and probably do it quite well, but we won't go outside of that because that would be seen as, as wrong because that's not what we were asked for. 
where there is this unwritten rule that if you do more, you're showing more potential, blah, blah, blah. But that needs to be more clear uh, to many of us, uh, not just neurodivergent, but again, to universally to everyone. Why do we have all these hidden rules and who sets them? Who is setting that whole social construct of, of unspoken laws? I think we need to make them spoken or write them down or make them clearer to everybody. And we will all then have an easier time in the workplace and certainly also on boards. Obviously on boards generally, we are senior executives, experienced people, uh, generally average age, what, 64 in the footsies, but let's say somewhere in our 50s. So we should be mature enough to understand, but the fact is that we are not all of us, and then there are areas that we always need to learn more on. But but boost your own effectiveness and engagement starts with yourself. For all of us, whether we are neurotypical or neurodivergent, it starts with yourself, and that's the best the best help I can give people if they want to do that. Thank you, Mel. Um, any advice or suggestions you'd offer? Yeah, I would I would echo the point that Charlotte made about being curious. And I think that for us as humans is where we are going to learn much more about neurodiversity. So more and more we're hearing people like Charlotte share their neurodiverse um, diagnosis, their own strengths and challenges. And sometimes that's just sort of dropped into conversation like, oh, I've got dyslexia and, and then it moves on. What do what can I provide? You know, what systems or support might be really helpful to enable you to really thrive in your role, whether it's on the board, in your team, etc. So really, as board members, as leaders, having an understanding and appreciation of neurodiversity is going to help all of us. So whether that starts with literally having an awareness raising conversation or going and finding out what does neurodiversity mean? What are each of the neurodiverse and conditions, how do they look? Do who do I know? Will really start to help to increase our own true appreciation of neurodiversity and neurodiverse talent, which will just help us all to thrive and all of us to to really succeed. Great. And last but not least, Randall, any advice or suggestions or thoughts you'd like to leave us with? I would. Um, I guess the point I would make is. You know, the, coming back to this issue of disclosure, I would encourage people uh, from these backgrounds to be out there in the world uh, and proud of it. And most importantly, when you do talk about it, um, not to self-exclude as a result. Because actually, if you whatever, even though you, you know, even if you have, you know, one of these, you know, different ways of processing in the world, because of the kind of historical public shame associated with it uh it's really easy to say oh if i do that then i, I like I, I almost don't want to show my face and that's what we need to change and the more people who do that the more that's going to open up the doors for others and at the same time i'm going to repeat what both of the other guests uh also said which is everybody needs to learn more about this absolutely everybody needs to learn more about this so we can stop that cycle of shame um, and actually embrace the positive for what it is. Great. Thank you, Randall. And I'm conscious we'll be providing listeners with resources they can reference to educate themselves and become more familiar with some of the themes that we've discussed on the podcast. Thank you again for joining me today, Charlotte, Mel, and Randall. 
I feel certain this conversation will be seen as valuable resource for many of those in the business community. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Isla. It's been a real pleasure to be here. You've been listening to Leadership Playbook, a London Business School podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast. Just search London Business School in your podcasting app of choice. To receive a curated selection of articles, podcasts, and films directed to your inbox each fortnight, subscribe to Think at London Business School, the place to go for thought leadership and business insights from London Business School's faculty, staff, and alumni. We will also be providing a number of resources that will be useful on the topic of neurodiversity in the workplace and can be also accessed by tapping the link in the show notes below. And also, don't forget to check out the activities and thought leadership pieces emerging from the London Business School Leadership Institute. Links to our website can also be found in the show notes below. Thanks for listening.